he graduated in Cambridge having read classics and law. He was uh, called to the bar in 1951. He went to work for distillers, chemicals and plastics. So he has experience in industry and even a great pleasure to myself as a chemical engineer that he worked in the chemical processing industry. Not as an engineer, of course, but never mind being working in the industry is, is something. He uh, was selected to fight a, uh, a parliamentary constituency in 1963 and in fact had the honour of taking over Winston Churchill's constituency when Churchill retired. It was Woodford, wasn't it? Wood, the constituency of Woodford, which of course he won. Uh, he had a, 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 an illustrious uh, parliamentary career in a series of conservative uh, administrations. Um, time is a little short to read through all that, but I'm sure many of the, particularly of the slightly older members here will remember Patrick Jenkin as a, a very active uh, politician in the 60s and 70s. He became a peer in 1987, a life peer, and he has been extremely active in the House of Lords. He's currently a member of the House Committee, Select Committee on Science and Technology, and uh, has interests of engineering at heart. I'd just like to read one quick quote. I believe that to be patron, which is absolutely wonderful, to continue that connection with the Jenkin family and also to help in a small way to promote engineering here locally and, and indeed further abroad. So I'd like to introduce Lord Jenkin. Professor Darton, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for those kind words. I hadn't realised you were going to refer to my parliamentary predecessor, Winston Churchill. There was a, an occasion when he was about to be introduced and he approached the chairman of the meeting and said, uh, who said to Mr Churchill, what would you like me to say by way of introduction? And the old man growled, keep it short. <laughs> and the chairman said to him, well, I, I was proposing to say, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to listen to the world's greatest living statesman. And there was a pause, and Winston said, yes, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> For which I've always drawn the conclusion that the distinction of the speaker varies inversely with the length of the introduction. <laughs> but you're very kind. It is for me an enormous honour to have been invited to be the patron of these centenary celebrations. And I, when uh, Richard Darton uh, wrote to me and suggested this, I was very happy to accept. Uh, and I know, too, my, my family are here. I have, uh, in a, as well as my wife, who tends to look after me and keep me in order, there's my younger brother, Christopher, who read forestry uh, in Oxford at... Uh, he was at BNC, the same college as my grandmother, grandfather. My son Charles, who read engineering at University College London, um, and uh, he is here. And my granddaughter, Alex, who goes up to Cambridge next month to do natural sciences. So I think we're, we're carrying on the tradition. <clears throat> 25 years ago, I was asked to be present and make some remarks at the 75th anniversary of uh, the department and in a ceremony that took place at Rhodes House 
Um, and I had the great privilege of naming the building along at the end the Jenkin Building. I have to say, after my grandfather, and nothing to do with me. But it is there. I was the Secretary of State for Industry, which was the sponsoring department when I was invited. And uh, I have to say, when I became uh, the, the, the Secretary of State for Industry, my son was working in uh, the engineering industry, and he was so horrified, he came to the conclusion prayer was the only possible <laughs> solution, and he joined the church. <laughs> but uh, I've always regarded the combination of uh, a, a legal background and, and some years in practice with actual practical experience in industry, as you very kindly mentioned, as not a bad basis for politics. Well, now, up there on the screen is the portrait of my grandfather, Professor Fruin Jenkin. I knew him when he was rather older than when that picture was taken, uh, in the late 1930s. And to me, as an 11, 12-year-old, he seemed a very aloof figure, rather remote and quite formidable. He was clearly reluctant to spend time uh, trying to share his knowledge, which was, of course, vast, with a mere 12-year-old boy. Um, and I, I found this, this difficult. I learned a certain amount from my grandmother and from my own mother, but not much from him. He had a reputation when there were visitors to the Jenkin home. He was, they were then living in St. Albans, because he'd been near the building research establishment, that uh, a visitor would come and Fruin would uh, seek to engage him in some learned conversation. And as the visitor was not up to that, Fruin promptly departed and went into his study and, <laughs> and, and, and left his wife to pick up the bits. <laughs> now, I'm very indebted to Alistair Howitson, uh, whose uh, uh, paper on the history of the department was included in some of the briefing which I was given in preparation for this event. Um, he is a, a, a remarkable raconteur of the, the way the department has developed over the last hundred years, and it's a remarkable story. Um, he is, I see, going to deliver a lecture next March, and his book on the subject is to be launched uh, in June. So, if I may use a, a word beloved of the lawyers, it is a work of supererogation if I were to try to uh, recount the history myself, and I will resist that temp temptation. What I can do is tell a couple of stories uh, about my grandfather, which are not in uh, Alistair Howardson's uh, paper, though whether they will figure in the book remains to be seen. <coughs> he tells, uh, Alistair tells how the department closed down during World War I, um, seven years after the uh, foundation uh, after it was established. And my grandfather went off to work for a government department which was concerned with the whole business of designing uh, the munitions and equipment for the war. At one point he was working on aircraft and uh, he was uh, developing a number of new fabrics for coating the wings and the fuselages of what uh, when looked back on pretty primitive planes. And uh, 
The story is told that uh, at one point there was a length of fabric ready for testing and he took it out to the military airfield, which was then at, at Hatfield, and he uh, gave it to the technicians and said, now put this, there's enough, there's enough for covering one side of the wings, you've got both wings, but only one side, uh, and we could, I'll come back tomorrow and try it out. And the technicians uh, thought that, of course, that common sense, as anybody could see, that how a plane takes off is by the pressure under the wings. So they fastened the material on the underside of the wings. And uh, I think my grandfather rather assumed that they knew as much about aerodynamics as he did, because, of course, when he came along, he said, well, try it out. And, of course, it didn't take off. And he said, well, now take the material off and put it on the top of the wings. And, of course, and then you get the lift. And uh, the material worked. But their original, their original reaction to it is said, but, Professor, your material is no good. And he said, well, try it out properly. Now, I t this is a well-known lecture by Professor Lewis Walport called Science is Not Common Sense. And when I heard that, I told him this story. And he did me the compliment of going and looking up the records. And uh, a week or two later, came back to me and said, no, no, Patrick, it's absolutely right. It was just like that. Science <laughs> is not common sense. The second story concerns a box of engineering drawing instruments. I attended last year a reception at the House of Lords held by the Royal Academy of Engineering. And we all had our name badges on, and I was introduced to a man whose name was Peter Steghart. And I said to him, that's very interesting. I've only known one other Steghart in my life when I was a, a boy, uh, Paul Steghart. And there was a pause, and he said, that was my father. I knew Paul Steghart when he was a refugee from Austria. He was escaping from the Nazis, and uh, there was a, a tremendous program of getting academics and others to offer asylum and places of work to some of these refugees from, from the Nazis. And although my grandfather had by then retired from the university, he was very happy to accept uh, the suggestion that perhaps somebody might, he might look after. And the man was Paul Steghart. And I remember the discussions going on. This was at my grandparents' house. And as I say, I was about 12. The discussion going on is how they were going to get his wife and his small boy out of Europe. And the small boy was, of course, Peter. So when I mentioned the name of Paul Steghart, he looked at my badge and he said, Jenkin, but it was your father who rescued my father. And I said, well, actually not right. It was my grandfather. And he was terribly pleased to meet a member of the family. Uh, and as it were, 70 years later, have a reunion. But he did more than that. He was... He was a, a dying man at that point, Peter Steghart, and indeed he did die only a few months later. And I had a letter from another engineer uh, who uh, said that he, on his deathbed, um, Peter Steghart had given this other man, John Hyde, instructions 
that the set of engineering instruments that had belonged to my grandfather should be returned to the family. And John Hyde duly promised to do this, and uh, I met the Hydes, and the instruments were handed over. Um, I consulted the Royal Academy of Engineering, Philip Greenish, the chief executive, um, about this, and he gave me some information, but he also told Professor Rodney Etock Taylor, and word eventually reached Professor Darton. Would I possibly consider lending the instruments that had belonged to my grandfather to the department for the display during the centenary year? And I said, of course, I agreed. And here they are. And they will be on display in the cabinet outside, you may have seen uh, as you came in. But uh, that is how the instruments have come back to the department. I've, I've said loan because my family have said that really it is a family heirloom. So we've signed an agreement uh, so that they will be on loan and the department will be entitled to seek uh, an extension of the loan and we would be very happy to consider it at that time. But it's very nice that uh, on this centenary year, my grandfather's instruments should be based here for the time being in the department. Before I sit down and hand over to Sir Vivian Ramsey, could I make uh, one rather more germane point to the centenary celebrations? Dr. Howardson's paper has recounted in, in some details just how difficult it has been over the years for the department to convince the university and uh, the colleges of the need, for instance, in the early years, for more lecturers. At its beginning, my grandfather was the only engineer in the department and educating the students. Or later, for more readers, for the establishment of tutorial fellowships and for entrance scholarships. And all this against the background of a sort of high table joke that really engineering should not be taught in a university and you shouldn't pay too much attention to those rude mechanicals in the Parks Road. And uh, those arguments were all but won, the battles were all won, and uh, under leaders like Sir Richard Southworth, Sandy Tom, Douglas Holder and Peter Roth, um, they achieved all those things. But today, Professor Darton faces a further difficulty, and that is the issue of postgraduate students. Now, he tells me that to be competitive, the, university's, the University of Oxford's Department of Engineering Science requires an intake of about 140 postgraduates, which corresponds to two students per academic member. And at present, uh, they can admit around 60 each year, less than half as what is required. And of course, funding is a major difficulty. Funding for UK and EU students. Uh, the rising costs of graduate study deter many top students from continuing their education at Oxford. Only a very limited number of studentships and scholarships is available. And uh, there are 
funds really for only eight UK and EU students. And for instance, in one particular field, that of biomedical engineering, there's no funding at all. They tell me, Professor Darton tells me, that it is vital for the UK economy that they produce a mix of UK and overseas engineers so that the department does not become too reliant on one country, for instance, China. Now, one of the purposes of the centenary celebrations is the establishment of a centenary studentship fund to help graduate students to continue their studies here. Recruiting the best and the brightest students to undertake postgraduate study has become a key goal for the department. Oxford has much to offer, working with leading researchers in many fields, access to top-class resources, including world-class laboratories and libraries, and opportunities to make groundbreaking discoveries. May I therefore end by warmly commending this important initiative to your attention and pointing out that it fits very well with the Vice-Chancellor's efforts which are now being made to broaden the intake to Oxford University as a whole. It's different from what uh, Dr. Hood has, uh, is proposing, but to my mind it is wholly complementary and deserves to succeed. And my friends, I'm quite sure that if my grandfather were alive today, he would warmly applaud this proposal. Thank you.